Welcome to the next episode of the Staying Muddy podcast. Today we have Bartholomew Perez, who is a principal systems architect engineer at Northrop Grumman. He's an author of a book titled I'm Up to Something, which will be published sometime this year in, in August as of 2021. Um, and he's also involved in the Society of Hispanic Engineers. Um, and he is a marketing director for South Bay LA chapter? Correct. All right. So like, tell us more about yourself, what you do. You also mentioned that you're a realtor and you you have like a lot of kind of side projects, investment. Tell us a little bit more about what you do and who you are. Yeah. So I most would consider jack of all trades, master of none. I'd say uh, jack of many common trades and master of many uh, I stopped thinking about different disciplines and started seeing how they're very much connected. So by day, I am a systems architect engineer at Northrop Grumman. I do practice real estate as a realtor and as an investor, and I will be published this year as an author. Uh, my campaign is actually going on right now, and it's leading up to publishing in August 2021. Um, so I love a little bit of everything, and there has to be a component for the community where, yes, I'm very involved in giving back to the K through 12 and the collegiate student group so that, one, hey, <laughs> the success stories and failure stories that I've collected over the years that those are made aware because why, why reinvent the wheel? And um, secretly, I also love not very secret. <laughs> I love Marvel. Uh, one of my favorite characters is Iron Man, and I would say WandaVision is probably one of the best series right now. Thank you for that introduction. So let's kind of start out a little bit um, on kind of this background that that you seem to like live your life with. So not only are you an engineer um, with all these kind of projects that are going on, but a lot of them are kind of focused on giving back to the community. So tell us a little bit about how like that, how that was inspired how, like, what do you think communities need? What are they lacking? How are they affected? Like, which areas do you think are more affected? Maybe like a little bit geographically, um, you know, of course you're from LA, right? Um, so I think that that might shed a little bit of light on this particular community, maybe not so many other engineering, places where engineering is a little bit tougher to achieve for the community, but what's your experience in that in that area okay so we'll start with the way i grew up because that was really the foundation where engineering wasn't really a option or reality yeah we might have heard you can be an engineer but what does that really mean especially when there's no real role models coming into the classroom and talk about hey what they do day to day talk about the technology and being on the cutting edge of development of the future like those are the sort of things and stories that would have been nice to have growing up uh, being first generation Latino born to immigrant parents and low socioeconomic status that was not the case <laughs> um, I was the oldest of three and the expectation I felt was hey I have to lead by example so having good grades that was without saying uh, in our household education took precedence to anything else uh, before sports, before social activities, before hobbies, education had to be number one. So I grew up with good grades, but I didn't necessarily know that engineering was a thing that I could actually do as a profession. It wasn't until my second year in undergrad, after being declared for the first two years that, okay, now I have a big decision to make. And that decision was kind of inspired by my advisor at the time and by Google. <laughs> it was a Google search after that student advisement hey, why don't you look at engineering and maybe that might be of interest to you because you're good at math, you're good at science and your grades are pretty pretty good compared to the majority. So after that, did a Google search and Google returned with, as an engineer, you get to work on cutting edge technologies. You get to make the world a better place, directly contribute to the communities by, hey, making technologies better, but also making infrastructures a lot better. And the earnings for the average engineer is pretty decent. So based on all that, but I was sold on being able to make a difference and engaging the community um, because there is that component that we are responsible for the infrastructure of how we develop the, the worlds and communities and cities and other people. Because along the way, we share our stories now as engineers and this is the component that I felt was missing, which was 
being able to hear other people's stories. And now I get to share my stories to that in hopes that in an audience that might be of an underrepresented community, first generation, Latino, just low socioeconomic status, that this demographic can benefit from just hearing what does a day-to-day look like? And so it, it largely stems from the way I grew up, um, not having the resources, not having the role models. And now I feel like I have to bridge that gap. So if it's not me, I can always find somebody else in the community within SHIP, the Society of Hispanic Professional Engineers, that can fill that gap because uh, stories, they're probably one of the oldest ways of communication. And from generation to generation, we carry stories. And it's, I think, something that has to continue. Yeah, yeah, I, I totally see that. Um, you touched a little bit about how you didn't necessarily know what made you wanted to get into until you got into college, until like your second year around. And that's when you realized, hey, maybe STEM is something I wanted to go into. Um, I know a lot of people are fortunate enough to know what they want to go into the moment they actually apply to college and stuff like that. So I wanted to ask you, you know, having gone through that, um, how do you think you could... Um, seeing yourself back as like a high school student, what do you think would have been a good thing for you to experience to know like, hey, maybe STEM is a direction I want to go into instead of having to have realized that towards like already having been through college? So there's like already clubs where robotics, VEX robotics, those are great things to be involved with. Uh, I wish I had an interest or maybe even the support to join those things. Um, because I was part of the soccer team, I was part of the volleyball team, um, but just those extracurricular activities that were really more career focused, that would have been a great component to have. And it partly not asking for help, not knowing the help that I probably needed, those were two of the big components that were missing. Uh, when it came to, hey, we have the A through G requirements in high school, and <laughs> that's as much as we know, take a couple AP exams and then prepare for the SATs and the uh, there's one more exam, but between both the college entrance exams that that's about it. And so just knowing that, Hey, joining those type of clubs and ship ship has junior chapters that at the high school level, they already have exposure to professionals and workshops and resources. And that really is the biggest differentiator. So if I could go back and give my 16, 15 year old self some advice is, hey, go join or find a robotics club or why not be the founder of a robotics club as a student? Uh, when, when, we, when we help found junior ship chapters, it really starts with the student bases because they know that they have the drive and the passion. And from that, they can, they can recruit and engage their friends along the way. And so, hey, I, I probably would have been one of the friends that was recruited because I think I'm interested. Let me find out what this is about. And that's really what makes a difference. Yeah, that, that definitely hits home. In high school, I was, a, I was exactly a part of the robotics club. <laughs> that's definitely yeah. the, the engineering side. So yeah, definitely that's, that's um, something you always want to encourage students that are interested in STEM and mathematics and all that stuff to get, them, to get involved, right? Um, and you had mentioned SHIP as well, that you played a large role. Did you hold any sort of like leadership positions? And if you did, like, did you like doing that and like creating that impact towards others? So early on in university, so I started my involvement in freshman and sophomore year, but this was like, I would attend the meetings for the free food because <laughs> it's constant. Yeah, it's like, <laughs> yeah, like, hey, I'm trying to get, to, <laughs> trying to get a bite to eat. And so they would always promote that. And so that brought me in. And so I, I became familiar with the members. I had not registered as a member officially. And then it wasn't until my junior year that, okay, I took it a little more serious that, hey, they're, they're sharing this information for a reason. And because they're sharing it, okay, now I understand, like, I need a resume. I need to build these interviewing skills. And then my senior year, that's when I started, okay, the chapter was in a position where it was dying out. And so it was either nobody takes lead and kind of try to rebuild it. And that's when I took it upon myself. That was how I got involved. I just nice. went, <laughs> went all in as president. And so it was really, uh, it was really a project because we're starting a chapter that's not an easy or found being a founder of anything. Yeah, so like, definitely not. It, it was not, but it was, it was very fulfilling because, hey, up until this day, the chapter thrives. And I was, I'm just happy that, I took the decision to be the leader, to make it happen. I, I knew I was not gonna accomplish everything I was wanting to, but if I set it up in a way that 
those to follow after the fact that they can do it, it was well worth it. And so for me, just being involved, it took me into the different conferences, the regional leadership development conferences, the national conferences. I participated in a design competition that was hosted by Nissan. Online. And so, yeah, it, it was it was those types of experiences towards the end of my undergrad. Yeah. But had it happened throughout the whole experience as an undergrad, it would have been a big difference. But I would still not trade my experience in undergrad for any other experience because it worked out, I think, how it was supposed to. And now when I share my, the story is, hey, do it a little bit sooner because it, you'll, it, it pays dividends because you already know what the process is like, the people that you should be meeting. And when you attend the career fairs, you're that much more prepared and probably already have an internship. I didn't have an internship, so that would have made a big difference too. But it's not impossible without, it's just, hey, you're kind of these are the cheat codes into being able to succeed a little bit faster, depending on what the path looks like for you. Yeah, the conferences definitely help. Um, I, I, we didn't include this question, but I think one of the interesting things to bring up is that, so you, you did your bachelor's, I think at, at, at CSU Northridge, right, from a Cal State, and then you went into um a master's at uc san diego but it was like a very special master's right correct so tell us a little bit about that um before we get into kind of the the career um tips that you might have like resume building and things that you learned from your time in in the society sure uh, when it comes to education, again, uh, that was without saying I was supposed to go to college, at least university, a four-year school. Um, I avoided community college for the statistic that our college advisors in high school, they, they instilled fear, like the majority drop out. And so we don't want this to be you guys. So to avoid being part of the statistic, which is not true because uh, a majority will succeed and probably even a better trajectory having gone to a two-year community college because now you have a bigger option pool for what universities you actually want to go. So if right out of high school, you didn't make it into Cal Poly Pomona or Cal Poly Slow or USC or UCLA, now those are options because you, you have the grades, you have the college credits. Now it's much more focused. Um, I didn't have those options. I, if I understood it a little better, I would have done that route. Uh, I attended Cal State Northridge because it was one of those schools that accepted me. <laughs> it, it really came down to that. It was between Cal State Northridge, San Bernardino, and Riverside. So between those three schools, hey, they took me. Cool. Okay, which one? Which one is gonna keep me with out of the least amount of debt? And which one will keep me a little bit more when it comes to the FAFSA? Because hey, we get federal support, but at the same time, also the federal loan. So considering uh, that into consideration, Cal State Northridge was the one. And even though it wasn't my first choice, I think it was the best choice because it worked out the way it did up until now. Uh, then when it came to UC San Diego, well, after graduation, I knew that I wanted to do a master's, but experience was much more important for me just to have an idea what realm do I really want to focus in? Because you'll have, again, more options. What do you want to pursue? Do you really want to be a designer? Do you really want to be in logistics or supply chain? I didn't want any of those. <laughs> I knew that I wanted more into systems engineering and architecting and developing how different systems are connected and might talk to each other. So this is now aircraft, satellites, uh, missiles, uh, submarines, and a bunch of other stuff. And so that was much more interesting than just being a designer. So my, my grad school was a reflection of that where UC San Diego has this architecture-based enterprise systems engineering program, one year fully funded. <laughs> it's a mouthful. But... <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> Tongue twister, say it five times. <laughs> um, and with them, like they give you a little bit about everything, the business side, the contract side, the leadership side, the architecting sides and the system engineering side. So they combine it to one year. And I think it's effective enough to the point that you're very familiar just after graduation to at least one apply to the different roles that are relevant to that uh, degree. And at the same time, be practicing and also lead a proficient career. 
So here's a couple of questions that we, let me deviate a little bit too from, from the questions that we prepared for you. But um, for that program, right, do you have to have a bachelor's in mechanical engineering in order to get into that master's program? No, so it, it requires a STEM degree and it requires years of experience. So I think it's four to five years of experience, professional experience. Oh, wow. Okay. But, but not specific to just mechanical. Cause what, what we had physicists, we had all types of engineers, chemical engineers, uh, materials. We had supply chain business professionals. They'll take business professionals too. And then the, the follow-up question for that was, like, suppose that um, you are starting this program, um, are there technical classes that are part of the curriculum or is it more like management-based? So a technical foundation is important because you have to understand products. You have to understand how, from a design standpoint, one, how you make that, and then how once it might be in the world, how it might have to communicate with other systems. So now you're dealing with uh, electronics, you're dealing with communication engineering. There's, it, there's so many layers to this that you, you should be familiar with in different domains. Um, also in software, if you're programming, maybe you're dealing with the cloud and uh, the Amazon um, AWS. Like there's so many layers to it that you have to have some level of technical foundation going in but not everything because they'll they'll share enough so that you're familiar and then you start going into it it's not in depth that you might get if it was focused just on like material science mm -hmm. it, it's not to that level the whole idea is that they give you enough generally speaking so that you're more prepared to like let's say to the equivalent of what an mba a quasi MBA with a quasi systems engineering degree might look like in one year. Okay, so there's like less physics based classes. Or there's, none at not, all. there's none at all. Okay. <laughs> yeah, okay. So that's really interesting that, you know, there's an addition. I know like a lot of engineers are told to get a master's degree, right? And usually it's thesis based, right? But it was really interesting to see that you could, there are options out there where once you already have the technical background, you can get into kind of a different field um, that it seems a little bit more niche. Like, I don't know if a lot of people know that there's master's degrees out there that are not just like technical mechanical engineering. They're more management based. They're more systems based, right? They're like, it's like a broader a broader scope of seeing the big picture and being able to like lead a project because of that knowledge, right? Yeah, so Correct. that's a really interesting aspect of it. So now kind of leading into the things that you learned in order to like use your knowledge and use your background and use your experience to get into maybe the position that you have now. Um, I don't know, during the timeline, um, when you started working compared to when you got the master's, was it before or after? So I was working the whole time. I didn't, I didn't take a break. It was a concurrent where I was working. And then on my off Fridays, I would, that would be class time. So it was a very special program in the sense, um, because we're 980 schedules on our off Fridays and the Saturdays, that was class time. And there were certain workshops that we had to attend Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, that was once a quarter. So really, like, if you think about the days in class, it was only maybe like 40 days out of the calendar year or academic year. Uh, and it was still divided into quarters, um, but it was project-based. So at least we had that collaboration within a group that was remote, except for the days that we were on site before COVID, then we, we did that. Yeah, so it's definitely like geared around somebody who already has a full-time position, presumably, right, because you needed that four to five years of experience, you probably don't want to stop working just to, you know, just to finish the master's, right, so it's more convenient and it's more like incentive to, to go through the curriculum without really interfering with like a full-time job. Yeah, this program in particular is designed for that reason, so that we don't take a break, so that we can finish the master's and still be able to work. Yeah. 
Okay, so like part of the like we were talking about part of the the work that you did is is building people up so that they can get into like the career path that they want and part of what you do is resume presentations. Right. So in those resume presentations, what do you think is like one of the biggest mistakes that people make or one of the biggest misconceptions that people have about like building the resume? What's something maybe you see really often or that people feel like they need to put on their resume that they might not necessarily have to put on there? So I think it's understanding who has to look at your resume first. That would be number one, because anytime we draft the resume, we're we're designing it. Well, I'm going to say designing it. We're designing it to an automatic filtering system and understanding that that system is only going to look for key terms. And after looking at key terms, that they should be matching whatever the requisition or the job function is looking for, that that's what the direct comp comparison is happening. So if one, if you're not including relevant experience or relevant projects, student projects are very relevant. Let's that's a myth where they're not, and you shouldn't include them, definitely include them. Uh, it was a student project that got me hired onto Northrop Grumman. And so that's why I share that because it, it's very true and it still applies. Uh, so sharing and making sure that those keywords will show up, that's critical because uh, the system will give you a grade from one to a hundred and 70 is really where you want to be at according to the system. Uh, that's a C average, right? So if you're, if 70% of your resume is matching to 70% of what the requirements are asking for. Okay, now you get to move forward and now you're going to talk to the recruiter. And that's why most of the time you'll find that you're switched on to being considered if it's an automatic uh, system or you just submitted it online and then you talk to the hiring manager. So there's three layers to it. And understanding the three layers, if, if you skip, if you get to skip because uh, you should skip that first automatic step and just talk to the recruiter. If you find the recruiters like at the career fairs and conferences, you already have a preparation by having gauged what they're going to already look for. So really, this is the best practice that you can have by understanding that if you meet what the automatic filtering system is looking for, that you will already have a really good, strong impression on the recruiter who might not really have a technical understanding of what's really being looked for, but you can express that. Okay, now you can get into an interview and that's really your time to shine based on the resume, um, but just don't dismiss student projects. That would be the biggest piece of advice. Um, if you have the GPA, include that obviously, because that is a filter. And all it is is filters because you can have a rec and tens of thousands of people will apply you can have a rec where maybe 10 people apply. But if you meet a majority of what's being asked for, it's very likely that you're gonna be selected. So like if I'm a student, right? And um, I mean, I think everybody goes through this, but where is kind of the line between copy pasting, <laughs> right? Like copy pasting the requisition or like the, the job requirements, right? Um, and kind of, putting those keywords into something that you are actually capable of doing, right? Like your project, your student project might be really different from what the requirements of the job are, um, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you're not capable of doing it, right? So, you know, as, as somebody who might have like very different experience and different skills in terms of what they did for their student projects, how do you like feed those keywords into your resume without making it really obvious that you're copy pasting something. Copy pasting the requisition. Yes. <laughs> so yeah, you can do that, but there's also a trigger for it where if it does match hundred percent, it just automatically rejects it. Um, <laughs> now, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Like there has to, there has to be like the hack too. And uh, they, they thought about this because an engineer worked on this at some point and like, hey, okay, if you have this use case where somebody's just taking the exact same thing, yeah, that's probably a red flag. So there, there is that capability. Uh, the best thing you can do, again, is just take the keywords that are relevant. So if it's project management based, if it's maybe software based or mechanical design or manufacturing, like there, there's ways to do it and you should be very motivated to 
make it custom to what the requisition is asking for because it, it talks about your personality it talks about your work ethic it talks about several components that you would otherwise not see if if you decide to take that shortcut i think <laughs> you'll be in the job hunt for a long time <laughs> oh, <geez>. yeah <laughs> you you um you spoke a little bit about uh recruiters and I was fortunate enough to go to one of the chef conferences in Arizona and I actually happened to talk to you because you were a recruiter at Northrop Grumman. Um, so what I want to know is obviously you've had a few years being a recruiter and seeing not only countless resumes but also countless spaces right being able to see how their personality and how their mannerisms are when they actually speak to you like face to face as opposed to just like an online application. What are how can I put this? Um, how would you, what advice would you give someone when they're walking up to a recruiter, like in, in hopes of trying to find a position or in hopes of just trying to get some advice? So it's just asking for advice? Yeah, well, like, go ahead. Yeah, like, like either asking for advice or I mean, if you're at a career for the end goal is more than likely either trying to get an interview or trying to find that opportunity, right? So I'm sure you get a ton of different people with a ton of different sort of strategies coming to you and talking to you about about their resume. Like I know pe some people might have their resume in front of them and literally read word line by line to you, right? Or you have some people that are like well prepared and have sort of know how to get around and able to talk to you as a person. Absolutely. If we're people too, I think that's the first part. Like we, we're not that scary. Like we also have personalities where we want to be engaged and yes, we will talk to hundreds, if not thousands of people throughout the conference. Cause it's a what four or five day conference. So we can literally get up to a thousand people easily. Um, whether if it's virtual or not, if, the first impression does matter. So if you're already coming in nervous, like I think it's just the practice that you come in with also. So if you're already doing the mock interviews and just preparing yourself mentally and maybe having these hype techniques where two easy things you can do, maybe have a hype song, whatever that might be, your hype song to just yeah. get you motivated. Yeah, like easily, like it's kind of like yeah. the gym. If you work out, you're gonna find music that will motivate you while you're at the gym. Um, another thing you can do, there's certain movements, like if you make yourself bigger, it usually just builds and kind of creates in your mind, like, hey, I, this level without knowing the level of testosterone is just, hey, it's, you're making yourself like <laughs> seen uh, uh, things that I do, uh, I will do pushups in my room. And before I step up to whatever it is I have to do, if it's an interview, or if it's say maybe a recruitment event, that's what I'll do. And that gets my adrenaline going. Um, but the mannerisms, right? Because we'll see now body language, your tonality, what your face and uh, not face, but your non-verbal non gestures, what those things are saying. Because oftentimes what we're saying verbally is not going to match what our body says. And if there's a sense of anxiety or the sense of fear and then we're sweating, that's <laughs> that's that's going to also reflect on us where we might feel uncomfortable too because we might not know how to just put you at ease yeah um, yeah and I understand I, I've been there where the first time wasn't <laughs> it wasn't really uh pleasant because yeah it, it can be scary and so maybe it's just practicing and going around to the tables that you might not really have a strong interest in for whether or not you get a full-time role but it'll be and it's supposed to be good practice to want to step up to, I don't know, it's Boeing or Microsoft or Northrop or NASA that now you have, okay, you've built a little bit more confidence because you already had this conversation maybe like five minutes ago and now you're ready to talk to, I don't know, Bartholomew out, <laughs> the recruiter yeah. out. <laughs> yeah, and Bartholomew is not that scary, I promise. <laughs> <laughs> Some of the advice that they gave, I don't remember if it's our, our Baja group or where I learned this, but they definitely said, it might've been in like, we have one of, our classes at Cal State LA is to kind of like prepare you um, at, like in computer science to prepare you for like the, the job market. Um, but one of the things that they said is to definitely like practice on a company that you might not completely like have your heart in just as practice. So it's like, okay, like if I don't impress this recruiter, at least I'll have the experience of like 
going through like maybe like the anxiety or like the nervousness or you know the pressure of talking to someone who is a recruiter in real life you know they work for a real company but it might not be like maybe in the industry or the field that you like but it's good practice to talk to them and just see what kind of questions they ask before and like then the last thing that you're supposed to apply to is like the dream job like positions that that you want long term and that you would really 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 like actually like to join Mm -hmm. so that was something that they they said I don't know if you feel like you've ever been practiced on (laughs) (laughs) yes I have noticed it and sometimes they're very honest about it and I, I appreciate that because that's them taking responsibility for it um there's even several things that can come out of that too like if you decide hey i want to continue this conversation why not ask them for their contact like the professionally you can definitely ask that and there should be no reason why you should hesitate it also maybe along the in the in the future that hey you might have developed an interest in the organization and hey okay we connected at the conference yeah i remember you 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 told me that you weren't interested in us but now hey you have an interest <laughs> like like I'm going to associate that experience with, with who you are. And it was a very positive experience and hey, we might've gotten a laugh out of it too. Um, th- those reactions do matter. Um, so the way that it was presented to you, if it was Baja, like you were saying, like that's great advice. So I don't mind being practiced on. And I think about it a lot like dating. If, if you're going to ask your crush and like, you've been waiting for a while, like, yeah, it's going to get you nervous. Right. But if you were to ask somebody on a date that didn't really matter like there wasn't a lot at stake you didn't, <laughs> yeah like you didn't have feels like it, it it's not gonna matter <laughs> like it, it, it's not much different but it's reframing it like in a totally different way right <laughs> so yeah. the thing we hear right is date the recruiters <laughs> <laughs> well it, it's it's like dating <laughs> you've, you've broken a lot of people's hearts right Bart? <laughs> oh man i'm that person (laughs) um sort of sort of step away a little bit from engineering and um you know stem um you had mentioned that you had aspirations to be an actor like what every everything up until now has always just been engineering and you've uh, to some degree you've actually wanted to dabble in that in that industry what made you want to actually focus a little bit more of your time on acting so my first acting experience that was also paid was during undergrad and so in undergrad it was a very selective group uh they'll choose something like 10 to 15 for a cast and that cast their mission is to develop a script based on relationships body abuse prejudice and transitions into university they take this group of people they develop a script and they perform for incoming freshmen, transfer students, and faculty and staff. And so, for the course of two weeks at the beginning of the academic year, this is this is the mission. And so, I was selected during one of those casts, Take Twenty Three. This was at Cal State Northridge, and so that was my real first taste of being on a stage. And what I loved about it was not the being on stage; it was being able to share and tell a story. That for hey, two weeks I got to play different characters. And by playing different characters, like I was making connections with different types of people. So that was the first taste of it. And then later on, junior year and senior year, I started being involved in improv and improvisation. So with that is like, okay, you create a whole entire world that doesn't have to make sense. We're engineering. Everything has to make sense. (laughs) (laughs) And this was a great disconnect from my regular, hey, STEM and logic and like, no, like let's play pretend for a bit. And like right now we're in the back of a cab, we're going down to Disney World in Miami or Florida and it doesn't have to be correct. Like it's not Miami or Florida. It could be uh, the Netherlands and like it it could be totally different. And so I've always had this interest in different domains. And I think it's very reflective in my professional work as an engineer, as a realtor, as an investor, as an author, where the writing piece is very similar to what will be the acting piece where I've already had a bit of experience. And so now I can create different worlds and it doesn't have to make sense or be right uh, up to a certain degree. Right. Um, But just being able to tell stories, share stories, be a part of the story and being somebody different for a bit than Bartholomew Perez, because there's different layers to all of us. And I think it's also tapping into those different layers 
some of the people I admire, like Eva Longoria, she's also a very strong proponent for the STEM community and women in STEM, where her time at Cal State Northridge, her focus was on Latinas in STEM and how one, the, the division of pay and how very underrepresented they are. Um, and th that's her foundation. And she has an entire organization just based on that, uh, women empowerment for STEM. Um, but people like that, and you have things like Lin-Manuel, who his partner is also a, a STEM professional. And so I find that astounding that you're bringing on these different worlds and they don't have to live differently. They can coexist. So there's, yeah, it's a different passion. And I think it makes perfect sense to pursue. Yeah, that's, that's awesome. I mean, I can see that throughout your both your engineering career and, and, and acting, it's like you're doing it. There's a purpose behind it. Like you're trying to make an impact. And I think that's really admirable and kudos to you. That's awesome. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> yeah, you definitely don't see every day people who are kind of willing to branch out of their comfort zone. I know that STEM is definitely one of kind of like the harder careers that people take a lot of time and a lot of you know work to break into. But we forget that like we're still people after we're already here right and it's important to kind of like decompress like find ways to decompress find things to be passionate about even if you you are really passionate about stem you are really passionate about you know it's like and and your love for like the community and your storytelling in engineering definitely overlaps a little bit with you know the, the acting aspect of it and it's an interesting concept to think like you know how many movies have been made about people who went into stem i feel like maybe there's more like documentary based or more informative <laughs> stuff yeah but what if we you know what if you just want it to be fun like just because you're an engineer you're really smart you know or you're well educated like that doesn't necessarily mean that you didn't at one point go to parties or you didn't at one point like socialize right at one point you didn't date you know like the whole Stephen Hawking movie that I saw, it was, it's on Netflix now. Um, it focuses around like his different relationships, not just the, his genius, right? So there's like all sorts of facets to somebody who goes into STEM that are kind of important and fun to explore, right? Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Do you think that it helps with your creativity at work, just like getting to kind of play with the imagination there's definitely a time and place for it. Um, things have to make sense. <laughs> of course, yeah. Things have to make sense. In but when I like to stretch ideas, I feel like one. Even though it might not be accepted, hey, I brought something different to the table that somebody else might not have thought of, and so that could always lead to somebody something else. And if it's not for a technology-based decision, maybe it's for a business-based decision, and maybe it's even for a marketing-based decision. Like even at Northrop, there's so many layers to it that at the end of the day, you might be working with somebody else that will appreciate that level of creativity. So I think just being real and being true to, if it is a creative calling, why not? I don't, I don't, I don't. I'm not ashamed in sharing the creativity in a, in a room full of, if it's directors, vice presidents, uh, individual contributors, like it's fun and it should be that way. So speaking kind of like of using your creativity in engineering, um, one of the things that you did during your schooling was uh, human powered vehicles. Right, so tell us a little bit about kind of the ways that you came up with um, this vehicle, you came up with this design and what kind of like technical information do you think is important for like a, an undergrad or somebody who's working on this type of project? Like, what do you think was one of the most helpful engineering topics that you learned through that process? Mm. And you can get a little bit more technical. So because it was an ASME design challenge, you'll have a set of parameters that you have to build and design to. So they'll include things like human factors and safety factors, whether it's with loading, whether it's certain situations that you might be aware of that you might not be the most intuitive, but still be 
conscious about like a safety mechanism if your brakes lock because while race day you have to come up with a situation that you can as the operator be able to troubleshoot without an entire crew that might have to be involved um then you're having to think of things like turn radiuses and steering systems now you're going into what your wheels might have to look like if you have clearance uh when you're doing the turn and especially if you have a fairing how are you going to produce that fairing? Do we have anybody on the team that has taken a composite design course uh, <laughs> with wet layups for uh, composite materials? You're going to need a mold. How are you going to design that mold? Uh, what materials are you going to use? If you're using foam, how are you going to wrap that foam? Um, and if it's if you, if your routing table or your CNC machine is not big enough, how are you going to section off that <laughs> that uh, mold so that when you do do the wet layup? that it's gonna have the, the dimensions and the finish that you're supposed to have because it's composite. And so if you did uh, maybe a, a drag simulation that you have to have a certain coefficient, how are you gonna make sure that you actually achieve that? And it's not gonna act like a parachute as opposed to an actual a fairing and be able to reduce the drag. Um, like, okay, those sort of things might already be included. And then it comes to the systems engineering and the actual project management, where now you have to develop teams. You have to be able to be a leader, be able to be a follower. Um, also dealing with suppliers. Yeah, where are you gonna get your material? Who's gonna give you the best rates? Might you be able to get some donations out of it? Uh, maybe sponsors, that would be the ideal situation where they're providing the materials and at the same time, they're still adding to the marketing aspect of the group. Uh, with us, we had all of that it was great. Uh, it was an ASME challenge. So it, it was very focused. The creativity came when an innovation section where there was an innovation section. And so ours was, if there were multiple vehicles that were kind of, kind of like when you're driving down the street, if there, if you have, you're going to have blind spots. So how can you include maybe an Arduino? That's what we do. How do you include an Arduino so that it can tell you that there might be somebody in your blind spot. And so, I mean, it's not much different from a vehicle today that it'll blink off a sensor and it tells you, hey, somebody's behind you. Um, that now this incorporation into the technology that we're building, that it, it, it's very real. And at the same time, we were able to race and compete with it. And so it, it was neat from start to finish to be able to see that, that as we were putting it together on SolidWorks and building the assembly there and gathering all the components and purchasing the materials and, and then assembling it in the lab that this, this was real world experience. It really, it told the story of what's gonna happen eventually once we got into industry because now it's in, <laughs> it might be different cities, it might be different states, it might be different countries that are involved to make the system work. And how did, how did you specifically on that project, what did you contribute to the team? Were you like leadership? Were you a, like a team member or what, what section of that, of that project were you focused on? So I was, I was actually offered the chief engineer position, but this was also the same year that I, it was either chief engineer or president to ship. And I let emotions, <laughs> emotions got in the way. <laughs> yeah. But I was more passionate about, Hey, I want to rebuild something that was, that isn't broken, but needs to be here. So that was my focus. And so I, I was part of the components team. So choosing, choosing the braking system, choosing the steering system, uh, and then part of the fairing team. So doing the wet layup and figuring out the manufacturing of, that was my contribution. So it, it was fun because that was the same project. That was the same part of the project that got me hired. The How are we gonna build the mold? How are we gonna make sure that it has the right contours how are you going to do the wet layup? What tools do we need in the lab? That was that was what got me hired. How, how similar was that when you like first went into like industry? Like how close was it? It, it was very accurate. I'd say 95%, at least in that department for packaging, yeah, yeah. Engin, en packaging engineering and supply chain. Hey, we use foam. Hey, we have to do CNC routing. Hey, we have to send out uh, um, different size of molds to suppliers and it was it was all very relevant it was extremely relevant
So here's a fun question. Like you as a recruiter probably have asked this a thousand times. Um, it's the star questions, right? Um, part of the star questioning is like, they always ask you like, what's a challenge that you faced in your project and like, how did you solve it, right? So were there any challenges that you faced um, making this human powered vehicle? And if so, what was your solution to it? <laughs> We're asking the recruiter the star questions. <laughs> <laughs> so the situation on race day, we had we had the vehicle, and it, it there's a large boom. The boom holds the entire vehicle together, and it came undone. So the situation was if we don't figure out how to put it back together, because we couldn't weld, that we weren't able to compete or showcase because there were different events. So two events was a sprint event where uh, we had to race around the track for the fastest time. And then uh, a course event where now it's different laps between different members of the group to go around the course. Uh, so if we didn't have a boom, a fully connected vehicle, we didn't have a vehicle to race with. So but what we did. So is a boom like a chassis, basically? It's part of the chassis. It is part of the chassis. Yeah, so it's it's it, it's the longest part of the chassis where it runs literally through the entire vehicle, um, and it's a single member. Uh, so we we found a Lowe's that was open late, and so we gathered material that we needed to. It wasn't it wasn't the same as welding, but it was good enough to at least okay, <laughs> it would hold up and it held up. Um, so we we responded accordingly. We took the night. We geez, we didn't we got little sleep that night, maybe two to three hours. <laughs> I'm getting but, like Baja flashback. <laughs> yeah, things will happen and that's okay. But having answers and having a response of some kind, like this is where it, the magic happens. <laughs> so like I imagine with Baja, like something was missing or maybe something wasn't working and now you have to troubleshoot, right? Well, rear suspension breaks and you gotta figure out how you're gonna rebuild it in, you know, with nothing but a trailer of tools, like in the middle of the desert, like yeah <laughs> but go ahead i want to hear what your guys solution was yeah so it was that uh zip ties zip times zip, zip ties oh, came yeah. through like yeah like they're so robust it's <laughs> <laughs> whoever designed and manufactured whoever has the pendant for that kudos to them because that was the solution to our problem and hey race day i mean it was functioning the only problem I had was uh, part of the steering columns came undone and it was just a fastener and a, and a nut that was holding it. Um, so I had to drag the vehicle through the course, maybe 180, no, 80 yards, not yards, 80 feet. Um, but the course, it went well. We did, competed against like other schools. And so it was competitive enough. Our innovation project that got us first place and we placed maybe five top five top 10 of that competition out of 25 different schools mm -hmm. uh so it was, it was not bad i mean and it was the first year that our professor led the the group uh he did phenomenal the the following year i think they were top three um but it was a great experience again experience i would not trade for anything else that sounds like a lot of fun <laughs> you, you, you touched a little bit on um sort of veer off into an, another project that you worked on um a cloud-based medical device like how does an engineer contribute to a project like that <laughs> so this is where having teammates comes in clutch because i don't necessarily know everything about the cloud-based aws but my team members know enough so that okay uh, i might not know everything about that but at least when it comes to again delivering ideas i got tons of those and they won't make sense but hey maybe they make sense to it um where i had to do a bit of homework was on the integration how how would a device talk to a cloud-based system and still make sure that it's gonna appropriately maybe through uh the osha standards or different medical requirements that were still being compliant so that was my contributions where I couldn't necessarily speak on the AWS, but at least understanding, hey, maybe how does Bluetooth, how does that work? And how, what are the limitations within a, a hospital, for example, of using different devices 
and making sure that there's connectivity or maybe constant updating. Because if you don't have the latest software on, like we know what happens on an iPhone, if the latest software is not there, it's just not gonna work. Well, it's not much different from a medical device out in a hospital. You have to have the most up-to-date. Um, you have to have it calibrated. You have to have uh, redundancy. So if one's being used, do you have a spare? Do you have maybe another hospital that you can use? It's uh, like kind of like with the ventilators that was going on with the uh, early onset of COVID. That was the biggest uh, disparity where they had to figure out well, why are we going to get more ventilators? You can't just magically start manufacturing and mass produce. Yeah. You have to use what you have. So having a system that works <laughs> and team members that you can depend on. Yeah, because coming from like a mechanical engineer, anything cloud-based is very daunting. <laughs> so I'm glad you had you had a team members that were able to to help you along with that project for sure. Yeah, um, that's the great part. We don't have to know everything. We have to know enough, but not everything. And we can depend on them. And it's up to us to whatever we can contribute, we should contribute. Definitely. So let's say that you're the kind of person who only ever want to design or kind of maybe lean towards the manufacturing part of engineering where it's maybe a little more hands-on or maybe like you're, you're directly focused on kind of making parts and, and thinking about like how they fit into a system, right? How, like what kind of information would you give somebody like that to consider about other parts of engineering that are kind of less, you know, less talked about or less, considered by people like you know where they'd say you know what like I don't necessarily have to make parts like there's this other side that also might be a lot of fun you know what what kind of information do you think is is important for them to consider going into that and what do you think is like a really fun aspect of that mm. <laughs> I love this question because now you're taking the focus away from just technical based to just design right and so I, I i purposely wanted to start off somewhere that wasn't necessarily heavy on design and it was more focused on supply chain i wanted to know how goods moved around the world how uh, an enterprise like northrop grumman would have to support maybe the customer because that's that's one side that we don't necessarily talk about as an engineer but we, we directly support a customer somewhere. Um, then there's there was the world of logistics and modernization where now we're dealing with contracts. Now we're dealing with data to support and sustain programs that might be deployed. Uh, so yes, there's other, other realms of engineering that are just not mechanical based. There's logistics engineering, supply chain engineering, pa packaging engineering, industrial engineering, which is, uh, quasi-manufacturing, quasi-project management. And now you're really focused on the efficiencies that might be associated with a manufacturing engineer or a quality engineer. Uh, what's fun about them is they're going to be different. So I think most of us engineers love to learn. And because of that, like this is a new skill set that you will get to learn. And so if you're thinking about maybe management in the future, having having a variety in your experience makes for a stronger contribution, I think, because now you can speak on different terms to where not just the technical, but now you can also talk operationally. What does that look like in order to really have a supply chain and a manufacturing floor really work? Um, but if the focus is more design centric and being the decision maker on what a product should look like, now you should probably be involved in research and development. So um, those are much more limited <laughs> uh, roles, but there's tons of ways to still get involved somehow because maybe there has to be a change and you might have to do it through a logistics function in order to achieve that. How would you like, how would you advise somebody to kind of start branching out into learning more about different aspects of engineering that they don't really talk about in school right in school they kind of tell you like 
you're designing a part or you have to know like physically more physically how it functions how would you advise somebody to to learn like what a logistics engineer is to learn what you know a, a, a somebody who kind of works on manufacturing processes or, or all of those things that you mentioned how would they get started learning to see if that's like the right fit for them cool. i would start on linkedin <laughs> there's there's all kinds of engineers on there um and reaching out to see if they're open to 30 minutes of just hey i, I would love to learn about what it means to be a operations engineer um what does that mean uh i'd like to know a day in the life and it's not intrusive either. It's just you genuinely want to know. And the easiest way to even overcome any objection is, are you a part of an organization like SHIP or were they an alumni to Baja? And now you have something that you can both relate to. And at the same time, you can still learn on whatever that discipline might be. Uh, this is something I wish I would have done sooner too. Um, but now that's just something that I share because you, you, you can get all sorts of different backgrounds and experiences from LinkedIn, and they're very diverse. People don't have a really straight or linear path, and there isn't one. And so because of that, LinkedIn is, is a great resource asking for mentorship. And if not mentorship, at least 30 minutes to, to get an idea of what that looks like, um, inviting guest speakers, having a podcast and <laughs> having this sort of discussion on careers and what a multidisciplinary background might look like. But yeah, asking is the first step. So make it yeah. known. Yeah, well, having you touched a little bit about asking. So I kind of, and I think a lot of us really want to know what your day-to-day -day looks like. And you've said it yourself, like you are a jack of all trades. You have real realtors, engineering, business, finance. Like how do you have time for all this and the time that you make, how does your day-to-day -day look like when, for something like that? So I'm usually up by like four and I wake <laughs> up early. Yeah. <laughs> and, and today the earthquake woke me up twice. <laughs> so I was like, <laughs> yeah, you guys felt it? I was yeah, up at four in the morning too. I couldn't fall back asleep. <laughs> it was, it was pretty bad. And there was like two, um, but waking up early for me, it's very strategic because I, I feel most creative in the mornings. So I'll get my writing done in the morning. It doesn't have to be a lot. Like I'm not difficult on myself. If I can do 500 words in the morning, Hey, that's a win. It's better than zero. And so I'll start off doing that. Uh, I'll start taking care of certain tasks that my real estate might ask of me. So I'll spend an hour, hour, hour and a half. So usually by like seven o'clock, I will be ready or get ready for the rest of my engineering day. And that's already called for. I'll be in a lab out in Space Park or in Dondo Beach or somewhere on site. So I'll spend the next eight, nine to 10 hours on site. And then I uh, should be off by like four or five. Uh, and then that opens up the rest of my day for real estate. And then usually by seven, six or seven, I'm flexible on the time, six or seven, I'll make time for the gym. And then uh, if I'm not at the gym, I'm usually having some sort of conversation on a podcast or an interview um, and still being involved in the community. So it's also partly community time, but it's flexible enough that if, if I have to make exceptions, I'll do it because it should be flexible enough. And I think if it was just straight, like, no, I can't do this. <laughs> I, I would be less satisfied with my experience. So it's flexible enough and it, I have to be so that I can still accomplish everything that I'm wanting to accomplish. Wow. <laughs> the 4 a.m. wake up call is definitely. I mean, at, at what point did you, was that like a routine for you? Like, was that, like through high school, was that something that you like woke up early? You had, you uh, you played sports, so I'm more than likely you probably woke up early and trained and things like that. So was that something that you took on early on or like in college when you knew like, hey, like I, there's a lot of things I got to get done and I need more time in the day? I got it from my parents. Uh, my dad would have to be up at like 2 a.m. My mom was usually up at the same time. So she would prepare the meals. 
uh, because she would be gone for work, but she made sure we had breakfast, lunch, dinner. So when we got back from school, like that was already prepared. My dad would have to take, none of my parents drove. They would always take the bus. So they had to make sure that took the bus. Uh, my dad would go to downtown from little Armenia. So in the bus, it was maybe an hour. Um, so I got it from them. I saw that because there was a routine from them and it, it was discipline that that's how they made it work. Um, now, as an adult, I see that, hey, they, they went through the exact same thing. I, I'm doing it for different reasons and uh, more or less like establishing a certain benchmark for myself where I don't have children today, but when I do, I want to be able to dedicate as much time as I can to them, where I wish my parents spent more time with us as opposed to more, uh, more time working. No fault to them. Uh, they... They were wanting to provide for us, made sure we had food, shelter, water, and we had all of that. We had all of that, um, but I want to provide a little bit more in the sense that now I can contribute time and the development of my children and be able to give them the attention and the nurturing that they need so that maybe if they do decide to be engineers, that they know that early on as opposed to later in life, or if they don't have any interest in engineering, that's fine. It's like, hey, mijo, mija, what do you want to do? <laughs> like, yeah. there's options. Yeah. So that's the sort of thing. And that's the big why as to, hey, 4 a.m. like, let's do this. Like, <laughs> let's go. I'm ready. <laughs> so speaking of kind of like children and your future, that's the next and last question that we have for you. Um, where do you see yourself in the future? I mean, you, you built kind of this life for yourself where you're you're having a hand in like many different places and trying a lot of things out. So what, like maybe five years, 10 years, 20 years, where do you see yourself? What do you see yourself doing or, you know, what's, what's the plan? <laughs> what's the game plan? So, so I know up to five years for sure. Like I'll still be in some engineering capacity uh, where I can see myself in my current role for another two to three years. So still working as a systems architect engineer where that the next step would be to be in management. So at the end of the four or five years, I can see that happening. Uh, if it happens sooner, great. If it doesn't happen sooner, great. I'm perfectly satisfied with my contributions to Northrop in the capacity that I'm doing it today. When it comes to real estate, that's definitely going to evolve where now I'm working with a group not just as a realtor, but as an investor too, where now it's more focused on the, the rental income and really on burrs where now we're buying, rehabbing, refinancing and renting out. And then as uh, the writing, I, I've already thought of two other book ideas where now it's really more focused on the personal development side. Not It's not just my story, but now, hey, these are the steps or the tools that you might want to know about and not, not so much a how-to book, but a how to not, <laughs> how to not book. Um, and then there's the acting component because the, the exploration is going to begin after my memoir is done and after it's published. So then I can focus on that where the, the premise is going to have to start with improv. So I will have to be involved with improv. And this is all within the five years. And at the end, there should be hopefully a partner <laughs> if not, <laughs> forever. Yeah. <laughs> or if not forever alone, that's fine too. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, sort of to close off a little bit, we definitely want to give you some time to let the viewers know and let everyone that's listening to um, any sort of, if you want to plug anything, if you have any sort of LinkedIn, YouTube, Facebook, Tumblr, Instagram, like this is, this is your time to shine. Yeah, absolutely. If, if you feel compelled and you want to reach out to me, I'm an open book. You can reach me by email or LinkedIn or social media. I'm open to all channels. Uh, again, my book will be published August 2021. My campaign's ongoing today up until for the next 20, 28 days. So we have two days in. And so it's, it's exciting because I can see the support and the community that I've built and developed and how like it, it's back and forth because not only am I sharing my story, but it's a story that many first-generation millennials, uh, people of color, under underrepresented persons, like this is what we all will at some point probably go through. And it's worth knowing that, hey, it's going to be okay. You, these are just the certain things you might want to know ahead of time. 
Um, but yeah, feel free to connect. I'm happy to answer any and all questions, whether it's engineering, real estate, investing, writing, <laughs> or what's going to be acting too. So if you want to join me on an improv class, like, hey, <laughs> shoot through. <laughs> <laughs> so your book is called I'm Up to Something. Where can people pre-order? Where can they buy it? Where are you selling it? Where are you so it, the, it? <laughs> <laughs> the campaign's going through Indiegogo, and this is what my publisher, New Degree Press, has supported me with. I can share the link at some point, uh, or if you decide, maybe you can share it with your audience too. Yeah, I can, awesome. I can definitely share that information. Um, what I'll do for your membership too is I'll, I'll share a discount code for 25%. So then that way, hey, that you can benefit from that too. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm, a, I'm an open book if anybody decides to reach out. That's awesome. Well, thank you, Bartholomew. We really do appreciate um, having you on here. We really do want to have you again, maybe in the next five years, and we'll see if uh, if everything came true, right? <laughs> Hopefully, we'll have little Bartholomews running around as well. <laughs> I would love that. Thank you. you. You've all been wonderful, really. I appreciate your time, Juan, Lizette, Crystal. You are phenomenal hosts. So partly the engagement and also it, it didn't feel like, hey, it was all about me, but being able to share what you guys have also gone through too, um, because th these are the stories that are worth sharing. Well, thank you. Thank you again, Bar. And this has been the uh, Staying Muddy podcast. Thanks for listening. And we'll see you guys next time. Quick announcements. We have a new Instagram just for the pod. Make sure to follow at Staying Muddy on Instagram. And if you are listening to us on iTunes, please give us a rating. Let us know how much you like the Staying Muddy podcast. Thank you for listening to the Staying Muddy Podcast. If you like what we do, join our subreddit, Staying Muddy Podcast. Or if you would like to learn more about our team, you can visit our website, Castellet Baja CE, or follow us on social media at Castellet Baja CE. Thanks again for listening.